This is the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. To find out more about Keystone, visit keystonerdu.church. We hope you enjoy today's message. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. If you've grown up in church at all, you've been around church culture at all, you've heard that terminology. Um, I, I'm sure you have. Um, and admittedly, today we're going to be back in John chapter 1, but we're going to simply use that as kind of a springboard um, to go to some other texts in the Old Testament uh, today. So we're going to bounce around a little bit. If you have your Bibles today, I do want to encourage you to turn uh, with me to John chapter 1, and then I also want to encourage you um, to bounce around with me. They will be on the screen, all the verses, as we always do. Um, however, uh, for today, we're going to be, we're going to be in several places. And so just to be prepared for that, but I want us to see the history and foundation, uh, as to why Jesus would be titled the lamb of God. I want us to understand that, uh, theologically, we pick up our text today in verse 29 of John chapter one. Uh, but in the previous verses, um, before this, John was being questioned about who he truly is. John the Baptist was being questioned about who he truly was. The crowd asked him if he is the Messiah or if he is Elijah or if he is one of the other prophets. And he quickly and immediately denies that. Uh, they then question him about baptizing people if he's not the Messiah. And then John the Baptist responds with a couple of famous verses that we'd probably be familiar with. 20, verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Obviously referring to Jesus. To set a broader context, we must understand that John the Baptist is the first spiritual voice that the nation of Israel, the children of Israel have heard in 400 years. Remember we finished the book of Nehemiah three weeks ago? And we talked about how Nehemiah chapter 13 was the, in, 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 the chrono, in the chronological order of scripture, that was the last chapter in the Old Testament. And we talked about how it ended with the children of Israel once again going back into their sin. And for 400 years, we see a silence in scripture. For 400 years, history tells us that the children of Israel saw somewhat of, or felt somewhat of a silence from God. Can you imagine? Let's put that in perspective. We think in, we think like in Bible story terms, 400 years, longer than the existence of our country. For 400 years, there had not been a spiritual voice speaking into the children of Israel. And now John the Baptist comes. You can imagine the questions that would arise. You can imagine the people not trusting. And it's in that context that we pick up the text for this morning's message. You see, John the Baptist knew that he needed to speak the language that the typical Jew and the typical, uh, uh, the typical family in Israel would understand. And so we pick up in verse 29 of John chapter 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, 
After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, speak through your word. (coughs) God, I pray that you would illuminate scripture today. I pray that we would learn not just a theological truth today, but that we would, we would learn a transformational truth today. And God, may we never get <clears throat> out of balance theologically or transformally. God, I pray that you would continue to use your word. Speak today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In order to properly understand what John the Baptist was claiming here to be that Jesus was the Lamb of God, we must study where he, <clears throat> what he evidently had studied, what John the Baptist had studied, and that was the Old Testament. It's what he had to study. Um, and it's found in the Old Testament we find that the lamb or the animal was the sacrifice for sin. Leviticus chapter 4 gives us a detailed look into the lamb that was needed for the sin offering. This specific lamb was to be a female lamb without blemish. But notice what this lamb offering did. Leviticus chapter 4, which I'm sure when you guys hit Leviticus on your annual Bible reading, you're like, yes, Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35. He shall remove all its fat as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering. Then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven him. This lamb would be the sacrifice required to cover and pay for sin. That's a general sacrifice, the sin offering that was needed. But we understand there that a lamb was was to be sacrificed and must be sacrificed in order for sins to be blotted out. But let's take a look a bit closer in the Old Testament and find a little bit more specifically where the Lamb of God talk began or where the animal sacrifice would begin. Number one, let's look at this, the sacrifice that covered my shame. The sacrifice that covered my shame. You guys will know this story well, and so I won't read all of the text this morning, but in Genesis chapter 3, there's a man named Adam, and he has a wife by the name of Eve, and Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden. They live in a place that does not have sin. They daily commune with God as he comes down and walks with them, and they have everything that they need. They're told to stay away um, from a tree, and they can't do it, and so we, as you and I know, uh, they, they sin. 
They sin. I want us to see uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. I want you to pay attention very quickly uh, to what they did. They sinned, and immediately they were ashamed of their nakedness. Keep in mind, up until that point, they were naked and not ashamed. They were, there was no sinful thought in their mind. There was no sinful action. The, the sexuality that, that comes with all of this had not yet invaded the Garden of Eden. And so they were ashamed of their nakedness with their sinless purity being gone. And so they immediately did what they thought was best. And they found some leaves and they sewed together skirts and they sewed together uh, coverings for their body doing the best that they could to cover their shame. But let's look down in the same chapter. And if you don't pay attention to this, you, you'll miss it. Genesis chapter 3, look down in verse 21. This is what God does. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Admittedly, in Genesis chapter 3, we don't know what type of animal God sacrificed that day. But we do know that there were skins of an animal that was, whose life was taken to cover the sin and the shame that Adam and Eve had brought upon themselves by committing the first sin recorded in, the, in humankind. We do know that an animal had to be sacrificed in order for God to make tunics of skin to clothe them. And so it's, 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 it is established right off the bat, the first sin committed, that there needed to be a sacrifice made to cover the sin. The very first sin that was ever committed set everything in order. The provision for sin was a sacrifice. An animal sacrifice. And by the way, this morning, can I say that sin does bring shame with it? I've got to be an honest preacher and pastor with you this morning. That when you, when you live a life of sin, there is, there is a result of shame that comes with living in the life of sin. And can I say that if we're not careful, we can allow the devil and we can allow uh, other people uh, to, to, to keep us in that state of shame we can allow other people to keep us uh, down where we're, where we're ashamed and we're and we can't handle it but can i say this morning that there was a sacrifice that was made and you don't have to live in shame this morning you don't have to focus and live in the past and you don't have to this morning let your your sins of the past uh, define who you are today that there is victory over the shame the shame and may i just say i i believe the shame of sin is a real thing. I believe it's a biblical thing. We kind of live in a culture that we, we sometimes celebrate the sin. And I, I don't know about you, but if I'm, if I'm right with my God and, I am, and I'm in, in fellowship with my God, when I sin, 
there's an element of shame that comes with that. And I believe it's a, it's, it's a shame that should drive us to repentance and, and humbly drive us to get things right with our God. But this morning, there's a sacrifice that has been made, and we're going to get to that later on, obviously, in our sermon today. But you don't have to live in shame this morning. You don't have to live in the shame of your sin and the shame of your past. You don't have to let uh, what you've done in your past define who you are today. There is a covering. There has been a covering made. There has been a tunic of skin that has been made. And today you can lift your head high, not in pride or, or in arrogance this morning, but you can lift your head high in confidence that there has been a lamb that was slain for your sin and for your shame. I believe that's one of the heartbeats of our church. I believe one of the heartbeats of our church is that we want to be a place where people who have felt the guilt of sin and people who have felt the shame of sin can come and find love and find peace and find comfort and find friends and find people who will come alongside them who will restore them, who will pray for them. I believe we've developed a culture of that, but if we're not careful, that can leave us as quickly as it came to us. And so we must continue to keep that culture of we're a church who loves and cares for those who are guilty and shamed in their sin. Number one, we saw the sacrifice, the lamb sacrifice, the animal sacrifice that covered my shame that covered the shame secondly this morning i want us to see this the sacrifice that took my place the sacrifice that took my place genesis chapter 22 tells a story of abraham and isaac i want to give you the backstory. there was a covenant made with abraham by god and remember we talked about those covenants a few weeks ago and how God will not, has never, will never break a covenant. He is the covenant-making God. We spoke about it in Nehemiah. God made a covenant with Abraham that he was going to make of him, his descendants, a great nation. That he was going to bless them and multiply. Abraham hears the covenant, believes the covenant. But then logic starts to play in and Abraham realizes how old he is and how old his wife is, well beyond the years of being able to bear children, his wife Sarah. And so Abraham and Sarah get together and they say, well, obviously, I mean, I know God made this covenant with us, but I mean, obviously God doesn't, God doesn't understand, right? You ever made statements like that? Like, God, you must not understand. Uh, he does. But I don't, I'm not sure how this is going to work. And Sarah's like, well, why don't you take Hagar, one of the, the servants, why don't you take her and why don't you uh, bear a child with her and we'll, we'll see if that's what God wanted. I mean, so Abraham does, Hagar, and they have a son, Ishmael. By the way, if you really want to get technical and bring it all the way back, all of the hate and wars and fighting that we see nowadays on the Gaza Strip in the Middle East can all be traced back to Ishmael and Isaac. It can all be traced back there, and it's been going on since then and will forever be going on until the day of the Lord comes. 
But God obviously had different things in mind, and he comes and visits Abraham and says, Abraham, your wife Sarah is going to get pregnant. Nearly 100 years old. Congratulations. (laughs) But that God miraculously allowed Sarah to conceive, and they had a miracle son, Isaac. Can you imagine? I mean, being, you know... Close to a hundred years old. I, yeah, I'm not a woman, and anyway, I'm not, I'm not close to a hundred either. So, I cannot imagine. But can you imagine the astonishment? Can you imagine the joy that comes from God providing the son that was going to make of Abraham a great nation? Man, the astonishment, the rejoicing, probably the, the parties that they threw. And, and every time he had a birthday, they were probably like, man, we're going to celebrate Isaac's birthday. And this is going to be awesome. He is the one. This is our miracle son. But we fast forward to Genesis 22 and we see God ask Abraham to do something unthinkable. God tests Abraham's faith by asking him to take his son his only true pure son and to go to a mountain and to make a sacrifice with his son not just any sacrifice but to sacrifice his son think about the context Wait a minute, God. I know I said you didn't know what you were doing back in the day when my wife could not get pregnant. I know I said that before, and I know you gave us Isaac, and I know it was supernatural, and I know that I don't have an answer for that, but God, I'm not really sure if you really understand now. This son that you have given us is now an older teenager probably, uh, 17-ish, and you've given us him, and now you're telling me if I truly believe you, that I'm going to take that son and I'm going to take him up a mountain with me and I'm going to sacrifice him. God, I'm now 117-ish years old. He's 17. I'm not sure how that's going to happen. Any 17-year-old boy that's told by a 117-year-old man to get up on a sacrifice and let me (coughs) stab you and kill you, probably not going to happen. Just imagine what was going through the mind of Abraham. Imagine what was going through the mind of Isaac, how it couldn't have been long into that hike that Isaac was like, hey, Dad, I think we forgot something. Hey, Dad, like we have a lot of the things we need, but it couldn't have been long before Isaac figured out that Abraham would be sacrificing his life. And in an amazingly humble and willing act of submission, Isaac allows his father to lay him on that altar, trusting that God had a plan. I understand that this test was meant to test the faith of Abraham. Can I submit today, I believe it equally tested the faith of Isaac. As you know the story, Abraham 
holds his hand back to come down to kill his son. And God at the very last second holds Abraham's hand from killing him. But the story didn't end there. You see, God did want to sacrifice that day. And Isaac was rightfully supposed to be on that altar. But look at verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There had to be a substitutionary death that day. As you can obviously see, he offered this ram, this lamb, instead of his son Isaac. This animal was the substitutionary sacrifice that was acceptable to God. The theological term for this is, if you've heard of this when you speak of the death of Jesus, the vicarious death of Jesus. The word vicarious means performed, exercised, received, or suffered in place of another. Taking the place of another person or thing, acting or serving as a substitute. You see, that altar had Isaac's name on it. But that ram in the thicket, substitutionary, vicariously, was sacrificed that day. I'm sure you can see the parallel. That on that cross, my name was supposed to be there. That on the cross, it shouldn't have said the king of the Jews. It should have said the chiefest of sinners. And that would have been me and you 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 and you. The vicarious, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ paralleled here in the Old Testament with the vicarious, substitutionary death of this animal to take the place of Isaac. What an amazing foretelling of the Lamb of God the substitute for your sin and for my sin that would take away the sins of the world. You see, this morning, it is a sacrifice that took my place. It is a sacrifice that covered my shame, this Lamb of God. Thirdly, I want us to see the sacrifice that saved my life. The sacrifice that saved my life. If you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and get there, Exodus chapter 12 is where we'll be. But fast forward a few hundred years, still the nation of Israel, still the same context, except this time they find themselves in Egyptian captivity. God raises up Moses and his brother Aaron, Moses to lead the people, Aaron, as the high priest, and he raises them up to help lead 
his people out of bondage, out of slavery uh, to the Egyptians and into the promised land. He wants to lead them out of the grip of Pharaoh, the mighty leader of Egypt. And in order to show his power to Pharaoh, God sends, first of all, nine plagues. And we know those plagues, if you've been in church since you were a kid, you learned what those plagues were. There were many of them, locusts, uh, flies, uh, water to blood, all, all the different things. We could go through all of them. But none of those first nine plagues could turn the heart of Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh would act like his heart was turned, and then he would, he would recant, and he would go back, and, and he, would, he would continue to keep the children of Israel in captivity. So the tenth and final plague is announced, and it has severe ramifications. We now know that this tenth plague has ramifications that would last for eternity. And you may be familiar with the tenth plague, but it was the Passover. God said that at midnight on the appointed day, the death angel would pass through the land, killing the firstborn son of every family, by the way, as well as the firstborn of all the animals. This would be a nationwide plague. This would impact the most important pharaoh and the most insignificant servant. This was an equal opportunity offender. There was no respecter of persons with this plague. No one would be excluded except for those who closely followed this command given in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3. On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. He then gives some more details about this Passover event in verses 6 down through 11, but pick up in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And to this day, the Jewish people celebrate this feast they call Passover. You see that male, firstborn, without blemish, lamb was to be killed. And those verses that we skipped over, the details were that they were to take that blood and they were to put that blood on the mantle of the door, over the, over the door, so that when the death angel came through, he would see the blood. And when he saw the blood of the animals that were, that, that were shed, the pure male uh, firstborn animals, he would see that blood and he would 
show mercy. And he would not go into that home. And he would not kill the firstborn in that family. And he would not kill the firstborn animal in that family and child in that family. And God would literally spare the life of any who would claim the blood of the lamb that was posted on their doors. I think it's obvious the symbolism and the connectivity. Jesus is our Passover. When we went through the names of Jesus and all of the different, uh, um, uh, the names that we would call him and the, the, the words to describe him, Passover. He is our Passover. Jesus' blood was when the day that we trusted in Christ as our Savior, his blood made atonement for our sins. And while his blood didn't go physically over the door of your house, his blood was taken up into heaven and sprinkled on the mercy seat and, and it forever atones for your sin and for my sin. And when God sees the blood, when Jesus sees the blood, he shows us mercy. He shows us mercy this morning. The male, the firstborn, without blemish, the Passover lamb. The male, the firstborn, without blemish, Jesus. In conclusion this morning, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. The writer of Hebrews says, and according to the law... Almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with, be with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27. And as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear, this, to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. You see, the truth here in Hebrews, and by the way, when we get to the book of Hebrews to preach through it, get ready, it's, it is an amazing book. But it basically says, hey, listen, if this were the true Old Testament sacrifice, then every year Jesus would have to die again. Every year Jesus would have to pay for sin's penalty again. But he makes the, the writer of Hebrews makes the statement in verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, he hung on the cross for past sins, he hung on the cross for present sins that were going on even at that moment. And thank God for all of us, he died for every future sin that was ever going to be committed. You see, we don't have to go back day after day and time after time 
and claim the blood of Christ on us over and over and over and over and over again. No, we accept Christ and his sacrifice for sin one time. He died one time for all. And we accept him as our savior one time for all. But we saw that the blood sacrifice has always been required for the payment of sin. And we find that Jesus' blood sacrifice is required for the payment for our sin. You say, Josh, what's the big deal about the blood of Christ? Honestly, if, if people are here that don't ever go to church and have never been involved in church, it's kind of an odd topic to talk about. And we as Christians, not only do we preach about the blood of Christ being so important, we even sing about it. I mean, think, if you think about it from a person's perspective who is, has no idea about Christianity, it's kind of a, an odd topic to, to sing about. It's not the most pleasant topic to speak about. How many of you get queasy around the sight of blood? Raise your hand. There we go. We got some. We are in the city of medicine, so... How many of you are like, yeah, sweet, it's just another day at the office? All right, yeah, that's, that's a lot. Of, there you go. <laughs> but it's uncomfortable. But why is it so important? The blood is so important. The blood of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the blood of Jesus Christ is so important because from Genesis chapter 3, from the very first sin that was ever committed on the face of this earth, all the way until the day that we go to meet him for our eternal home, there had to be a blood sacrifice to pay for sin. You say, why is the blood of Jesus so important? Couldn't he have just have died? No, there had to be a blood sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. And Jesus' holy, pure, righteous blood was shed on Calvary's cross for you and for me. It was a substitutionary blood that blood should have been my blood it was blood that would cover my shame it was blood that saved my life look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh every year sacrifice Every time it came around, another lamb, another lamb, another animal, another lamb, another animal. Continually, continually. And it could never completely satisfy. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. You see, for thousands of years, the children of Israel and those that would follow God, the creator of God, and eventually Jesus would bring their offerings every year and their sacrifices every year. And those were simply to gain the mercy of God. And they never were enough. They never were enough. You see, there needed to be, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God that could take away the sin of the world. Not just the sin of my household, not just the sin of your household this morning, but there had to be a Lamb of God that could and would take away the sin 
of the world, but that lamb had to be a male, and it had to be without blemish, and it had to be the firstborn. For God so loved the world that he gave his only firstborn, begotten son, male, and yes, he was perfect, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, he was God's plan from the beginning. I believe we find that in Genesis chapter 3. He was God's plan from the beginning. There had to be a blood sacrifice given for sin. He was that perfect sacrifice of love that brought the good news of the gospel to the world. The Lamb of God. And can I say that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, He wants to cover your shame. The sin that you have experienced in your life, the choices and decisions you've made that are against him and that have hurt his heart and probably caused you guilt and shame and pain in the past, he wants to cover your shame. He can because he's the lamb. And just like Genesis 3, he can cover your shame. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the ultimate sacrifice that took your place. You see, his death was vicarious, substitutionary. It means that that cross had your name on it. And that Jesus died your death. When he died on the cross, he died your death. But thirdly, that Jesus is the sacrifice that saved my life. You see, the wages of sin is death. And as that death angel, hypothetically speaking in our New Testament world, would come to my door and come to my house, that blood sacrifice, that Lamb of God, Jesus saved my life, his mercy, his grace. The Lamb of God. It's not just another one of his titles. It's not just another one of his names. It was so radically important. After 400 years of silence, after 400 years of God leaving his people and his children kind of in limbo, if you want to look at it that way. After 400 years of the children of Israel doing what was right in their own eyes, which we know never works out, John the Baptist shows up with this declaration. Hey, the lamb that you sacrifice every year, hey, the, the, the animal that you that you, your family gets together and sacrifices to make sure you guys are okay in God's eyes, you know, that every year, listen to me, children of Israel, behold the Lamb of God. And he's going to take away the sin of the whole world. Not just your family, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, the sinners, those who 
have rejected. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's your sin. That's my sin. That's past, present, future, once and for all, the Lamb of God. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. This has been the preaching podcast from Keystone Church and Pastor Josh Cox. For more information about Keystone Church, visit keystonerdu.church. Please subscribe to hear future messages. Thank you.